Rob Wolf has helped hundreds of thousands of people around the world transform their lives through his ever so effective paleo solution. In this interview, he talks about his life, his loves, and his latest upcoming book, Wired to Eat. Here's his story. Good morning, Rob, and welcome to the Local Paleo Show. A huge honor to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. I can't complain at all because no one listens anyway. Right. If you have an Italian wife, I know that story. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Rob, thank you for being with us. And uh, you and I have met a few times over the years at the Paleo Effects uh, event in Austin. It is our honor and pleasure to have you as our newest guest. Thank you. Um, Thanks. um, Absolutely. Um, I didn't sleep all night. You know, thinking about the interview. <laughs> um, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that that due diligence will pay off in the, uh, the interview process then. <laughs> all, right, all right. Thank you. Uh, for the few of our listeners that do not know enough about you, uh, I'll let yourself uh, introduce yourself. Sure, sure. You know, uh, I, um, I've always been interested in health and, and wellness. Uh, I was raised in a kind of an interesting environment when you think about that. Both parents were quite sick. Both of them smoked. Both of them developed type 2 diabetes in their late 30s, early 40s. And I think that, you know, sometimes you either glom onto the things that your parents do or you go the exact opposite direction. And I kind of ran the opposite direction. Uh, I was a California state powerlifting champion. I did some Thai boxing in my youth before I realized I wasn't actually that good at it. And I was, I was mainly a catcher's mitt for other people's uh, strikes. And so I eventually uh, hung up my, my uh, Thai boxing gloves. But I've always been interested in health, human performance, all that type of stuff. I did an undergrad in biochemistry, uh, was doing some benchtop research related to lipid metabolism and autoimmunity and cancer. And at this time I was eating, because I was experimenting with my own diet, I I assumed that maybe eating differently than the way that my parents did would be beneficial for me. But I was eating a high carb, low fat, vegan type diet. And for me, it just did not work. For some people it might, but for me, it it absolutely did not. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that uh, I was facing a bowel resection at the age of about 27, 28. Wow. Um, I'm about 175 pounds right now, and that's kind of my, my fighting weight. I'm pretty lean, reasonably muscular, but at the, the low point when my ulcerative colitis was its worst, I was about 130 pounds due to wow. malabsorption issues. So, I mean, uh, you know, I was eating 4,000 calories a day, but it was largely exiting the same way that it, it entered. So, I, mm-hmm. I just wasn't digesting or absorbing anything. And it was right around this time that kind of an interesting set of circumstances, but this idea of a paleo diet or an ancestral health approach got on my radar, and I started doing some research around that. I discovered uh, Lauren Cordain's early work, Arthur Devaney, and then I started experimenting with this stuff, and in removing the grains, legumes out of my diet and shifting more towards meat, fruits, vegetables, root shoots, and tubers, and really the, the, my first foray into this was low-carb paleo, specifically kind of a ketogenic paleo, um, it was the most powerful medicine that I had ever experienced in my life. Within a few days, I was sleeping through the whole night, whereas I hadn't slept through the night in, in a couple of years. 
Um, I started gaining back some weight. Uh, my energy was good. And almost 20 years later now, I've, I've just been, uh, you know, pushing this message out to folks. But when I, when I first stumbled onto all this, I was really thinking about going to medical school. But as I noodled on that option, I was looking at uh, the, the doctors that I was shadowing and they weren't really that excited about what they were, they were up to. And they didn't really have that much time to spend with people. It seemed like a lot of paperwork, a lot of hassle, a lot of liability, and about eight years of learning about pathology so that I could then turn around and try to talk to people about health. And so it seemed like a very circuitous route to, uh, to take. And right, this was right around 2000, 2001. And I had discovered online this kind of interesting workout called CrossFit. And apparently I was one of the first people to discover that online. And we started messing around with that. A good friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, and before we knew it, we had about 20 people working out out of Dave's garage. And uh, we contacted the CrossFit founders, Greg and Lauren Glassman, and basically said, hey, we want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they said, yes, go be achieve. And so I uh, co-founded what was then the first and then eventually the fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. And people who like CrossFit maybe think that's kind of nifty. People who don't like CrossFit usually look at me like the Antichrist because I helped to <laughs> spread this thing like syphilis around a college campus. And, and uh, But you know what, what that experience allowed me, it was basically a laboratory for working with lots and lots of people, talking to, to them about sleep, food, exercise, movement, community, all within this kind of uh, paleo ancestral health framework. So that was probably much more of an answer than what you wanted with regards to my, my background, but that's a, that's a, that's possibly a 10,000 foot level, not even 30,000 30, foot. No, that's a, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, there's uh, one thing I need to um, clarify. You say you noodled over it. You know that you know that noodles are not allowed in the paleo diet, right? Oh, sure they are. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what is it? The, um, uh, zucchini noodles and, and uh, uh, yes. uh, you know, the, the, the low-carb uh, uh, seaweed noodles. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I stand corrected then. Uh, so uh, what makes you tick these days in the paleo world? Well, you know, honestly, so I, I do have this new book, Wired to Eat, coming out, which, which really looks at the, the neuroregulation of appetite. And I'm, I'm excited about that. But really the most excited thing that I have going on in my life is this interest in uh, sustainability and really looking at, at uh, decentralized food systems and uh, everything that kind of goes into that, that food production and, and um, uh, kind of regenerative agriculture story. So I'm actually really, really passionate about that, but I feel like I still have a few more things I need to do on the protein, carb, fat, you know, realm and, uh, uh, but my, my ultimate goal is to really shift focus into this uh, sustainability story. It, it, early, early on, when I first got into the paleo diet concept, I started thinking about, well, you know, what are the sustainability implications here? And I really felt like this was a, a remarkably uh, powerful way of uh, regenerating nature and, and uh, you know, kind of undoing some of the damage that has occurred due to... Um, industrialization of row crops and, and stuff like that. And there's certainly some efficiency there, but some of that efficiency is coming at a pretty significant cost. So I, I um, the thing that actually keeps me motivated is the, the idea that I'm, I'm going to be out of protein, carbs, fat at some point and, and talking much more about this 
sustainability story. Right, right. Not yeah. to plug in the show, but we have already talked to uh, quite a few ranchers and uh, uh, farmers that are fully sustainable and grass-fed and, and all this good stuff. So yeah. uh, feel, free, feel free to check out some of the interviews we've done in the past. Absolutely. Um, I have, uh, over the past few years, uh, since I have been going to the paleo effects for four years now, I noticed over the, the years that each paleo church seems to soften a little bit. Can you expand on that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think this is just, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Like I'm thinking about 50 different things. So one piece of this is that when you're trying to help people and they don't know much about nutrition or health or lifestyle, you need a really simple message. You, you can't overwhelm them with um, facts and details. So you need a really, really simple message. And that basic paleo diet template is, is you know, no grains, no legumes, no dairy, done. You know, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Low carb is maybe even easier, you know, keep, keep carbs below 20 or 30 grams a day. And then implicitly in that, you end up with something that looks pretty paleo because one slice of bread basically is your whole day's allotment of carbohydrate. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. low carb is maybe even easier and more accessible than the paleo diet topic is. But what happened with the paleo concept is people kind of turned it into a religion. Instead of using the template as, as a starting point, they started, they spent an inordinate amount of time asking, is this item paleo? Versus asking, is this thing good for me? But this is, again, the kind of the dynamic tension between starting with a really simple heuristic, a really simple story that can get people moving forward. And that simple story will be beneficial for a certain number of people. But then there's a reality that there will be some folks that that story doesn't really fit. And, and we need this customization and this ability to look at things in a more nuanced fashion. And so you do need to ask questions. We do need additional inquiry, but it's a, it's a balancing act between starting with something that's simple enough so that you don't scare people away, but then also not turning that, that uh, uh, simple story into religious doctrine that then, you know, you're in a fight about, you know, it's like, well, no, no legumes. Well, what about green beans? Well, green beans are a legume. Well, are they really a problem though? Do you have an autoimmune disease? You know, and so you end up in the, in these uh, really kind of pitched nuanced um, battles. But if we can look at this thing from just basically like a nutrient density standpoint, whole foods, try to find a glycemic load, you know, a carbohydrate load that you feel good with, that's really about all that goes into it. But I, I think some of the hard edge has softened just based off of uh, experience. You know, this is, um, when you start implementing something in the real world and you're not just living in academic circles, then you, you start running up against the limitations of what people are willing to do, what people understand, and also the limitations of just what that, that theoretical template will, will offer, you know, like uh, uh, some of the, the old guard in the paleo diet scene, um, they're pretty adamant that uh, coffee is, quote, not paleo and tea is not paleo. And it's like, okay, it's not paleo, but is there any indication in the scientific literature that this stuff is at all bad for us? And you could maybe argue that too much coffee or too much at the wrong time or if you're overtrained, like, yeah, there's some problems there. But in general, whether we look at epidemiology or randomized controlled trials in humans, 
coffee is consistently beneficial for health. Tea is consistently beneficial for health. So this is where we kind of need that paleo template to start the conversation, but it's not where it ends. If we stop at that kind of revisionist, um, you know, paleolithic history class, then we're we're really going to miss a lot of the benefits that we have in the modern world. Right. Well, I'll drink to that. Nice, nice. (laughs) Uh, so basically, what, what, what we're trying to say here is that um, everyone is different and everyone should pay attention to what their body is selling them and adjust their diet slightly according to their own needs. Um, for example, in my case, I've found that if, I've, if I'm strict paleo, then I tend to have uh, what I would say uh, in a nice way blocked. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, right? So once in a while, uh, maybe once a week, I'll just eat some lentils. Mm-hmm. And then lentils will take care of it. You know? right. And so technically, lentils are not paleo, but I'm not stupid enough to stick so strictly to my diet that's going to impact me, my health. So right. I found that lentil works for me. So I'll do some lentils sometimes, and then my digestive system is happy, and then we're back to business. Right, right. Yeah, and that's uh, you know that that's something that people need to be better about. Uh, you know that that experimentation piece and the really orthodox kind of paleo message really doesn't allow for that. So, it, it, and I think to the detriment of the overall movement. And this is where the the broader kind of ancestral health template you know, provides a little bit more latitude in that regard. Like the Weston A. Price camp, um, you know they look at grains and legumes a little bit uh, more beneficially than the paleo diet camp. And, you know, interestingly, I would, I would say in general, most folks generally still do better w- by limiting the, the grains and legumes, sometimes right. the dairy, but um, there are cases and, you know, lentils, oddly enough, are one of the things that I use after my uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu training because it gets enough carbohydrate into my system that I'm able to re- replenish that muscle glycogen, but it seems to enter the system slow enough that I don't end up with that rebound hypoglycemia and I, I feel pretty pretty rough afterwards. So right, uh, right. I'm, I'm the paleo guy that now eats a decent amount of peanut butter and, and lentils and you know just uh, observationally, my digestion seems to be better, my sleep seems to be better, my performance is better. So I'm looking, feeling, performing better. The biomarkers are great. So, you know, do we, do we stick uh, with no, no legumes because it's paleo-religious dogma or do we experiment a little bit and, and you know, see how things uh, actually work out for us? Right. I know the example for me is that uh, being French, I love cheese. Mm-hmm. So that's a big no-no in the paleo diet, but I found that if I cheat, then I'm going to cheat with uh, raw cheese, and I found that goat cheese works better for me than, you know, uh, pasteurized other cheese. So again, it's a little tweak to my diet that typically would not be allowed on paleo, but, um, you know, there's certain things that we are not willing to give up, in my case, cheese. And then you just have to make it healthier for you in order to work for you as well so you don't right. feel so deprived and, and you know, self-critical right. if you cheat. Right. Well, and, and I would um, – I, I have a chapter in my book where I talk about the cheating concept. And I, I would uh, 
make an argument that even the framework of that is maybe misplaced. Uh, when you look at the actual meaning of the word cheat, it's to gain an unfair advantage. And so if we're eating a particular way, whether it's paleo or vegan or macrobiotic or what have you, if you eat something off of that, that main you know, thoroughfare of, okay, I'm supposed to be vegan or, or whatever, and you have something that it's not on that, you're not really cheating. You're just having something and there's going to be consequences to it. And the consequences may be good, bad, or neutral, you know, at the end of the day. And so I actually caution people to even use the terminology cheat because you can cheat in relationships, you can cheat on your taxes, but you can't cheat with food. There's just consequences with food. And to your point, I would suspect that uh, the types of cheese that you are choosing there's not really any negative consequences to it. And, and that's something that I've noticed. Um, for whatever reason, cow dairy, uh, bovine dairy is really kind of pro-inflammatory. Like it makes my joints hurt. I, I, uh, I get some acne from it and I get it almost immediately. Um, but sheep and goat dairy, I can eat with almost reckless abandon and I, I feel great from it. And I don't know if this is uh, some early... Um, you know, gut issues. And so now I became sensitive to cow dairy and I've tried raw cow dairy and unpasteurized, like the Dalai Lama milked it and blessed it. I, you know, the, again, the um, Weston A. Price people just, just don't believe that I've done any diligence on this stuff, but like I really, really tried and I still have some, some cow dairy occasionally, but uh, again, like sheep and goat dairy, I have zero problems with the cow dairy I immediately like my joints are just creaky and I can feel that in the morning and so I'm pretty pretty clear that you know there's a uh, an issue there but it's not a cheat it's just consequences and I think if we right. can get people to a spot where they they just look at this stuff and and uh you know um using the word cheat because because we are this gets off into the weeds a little bit but you know uh because we are social animals, we do have really strict senses of justice and morality and stuff like that. And so when we put the terminology cheat and we attach it to food, if we think that we cheated on something, then there is built into that this sense of moral failing. And then we start feeling bad and there's kind of a downward spiral with that. And what, what I've done in working with folks is I really encourage them to try to reframe the way that they talk about this stuff you can't really cheat with food. You're not gaining an unfair advantage with food. You're, you may be experiencing consequences with food. And then we're able to get it into this less emotional state, a more logical framework. And then we can, we can kind of do some work from, from there, not to diverge too far into the, into the weeds on that. Right, right. One thing that I've noticed, and this, is, this seems to be a very um, – Anglo-Saxon, uh, British, or maybe it's just American. Uh, this this whole sense of guilt around certain mm -hmm. foods, where people have this uh, this guilt trip, this uh, this emotional uh, blockage around certain foods, and they, there's what you can do, what you cannot do, and there's, I mean, in France, we just love food. That's it. End of story. Right. There's no guilt attached to it. You know, right. and so for me to observe that in uh, in the general American population, whether it's uh, you know the paleo world, the uh, local world, or the vegan world, because I also teach vegan, uh, there's this all these rules, and it's just so um, 
restrictive and so um, downright uh, annoying to me because it's right. like, for God's sake, live a little, you know. Right. Right. So what, what's your take on the, the, the whole guilt association with food? You know, there's definitely this kind of puritanical um, work ethic and also a puritanical kind of guilt mindset that's in the, the particularly prevalent in the United States and uh, the U.S. compared to other westernized kind of democratic systems is, is really quite religious still and uh, uh, much more so than, say, like, UK or Australia or New Zealand. And I think that there's kind of an undercurrent there that, that can be attributable to, to uh, increased sense of guilt. And within uh, biblical writing, there's the discussions around sloth and, and, and these types of things. And uh, what, what's unfortunate, so, so you know, what, what's the story that we hear from the mainstream medical establishment and particularly from dietitians when, when somebody is talking about, hey, I want to lose weight. And the general refrain is um, everything in moderation and eat, eat less, move more. And that seems completely reasonable. You know, we need to reduce caloric intake. We need to move a little bit more and, you know, just be moderate with what you do. But there's kind of a reality that that is the complete opposite of our genetic wiring. Our genetic wiring is to eat more, move less. And if there's something available, you eat all of it because you don't know if there was going to be anything available the next day or the next day or the next day. And so this, the basic recommendations, which sound really good on the surface, are really a trap. It, it, it entraps people. And so they get a sense that if they want to change their diet, this should be easy. And then when it's not easy, because it's fighting every element of our, our genetic you know, wiring, then they feel like a moral failure. If they were just stronger, if they were just better, if they, you know, if they weren't uh, you know, some damaged inner child, then they, they would be able to do this stuff. But living in this modern world, if you are not fat, sick, diabetic, and broken, you're actually kind of screwing up in a way. Like, we, you, you know, if we did honor to our, our ancestors who did starve and did struggle and had uh, food scarcity, which helped to forge the, the genetics which we've inherited, we should be ordering food to our front door eating it and then laying down under the kitchen table and doing nothing like that. that that's kind of you know, what we should be doing. Now, clearly doing that has really deleterious health effects. And so, you know, we do need to do something different, but I think if we can get people to understand that uh, the desire to eat all the desserts, all the, the tasty treats and all that, that is completely normal. But what we need to do is set up a, an environment in which, you know, we, um, we understand what those triggers are and, and we can kind of navigate from there. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating if you go, my wife's Italian. And so we've spent a decent amount of time in Florence. And when you have some of the, the desserts or just the, the basic cuisine in these areas, it's really, really good. But then you have a, you know, you have a cup of gelato and it's, it's great, but then you're, you're good. You're done, you know, it, but the, the way that we have modified foods in the United States in particular, and then we end up exporting this to the rest of the world, we have food scientists that think about how do we spin the dopamine centers in the brain so that this stuff is like cocaine? How do we make it addictive and hyper palatable? And so we, you know, if you are living amidst food that potentially, maybe, maybe this isn't accurate, but let's just say this is somewhat accurate. Let's say that this food could be as addictive as cocaine or in the same realm. 
Sugar. You know, sugar, you know, but how is this stuff at all? How can you make a case that moderation or, you know, uh, eat a little less, move a little more? How is that a reasonable response? It's just not like it fails again and again and again. So, you know, I definitely have observed and, and it's interesting, like you've observed this uh, from the outside looking in and then I've grown up in the, this specific culture and I definitely have seen this uh, same process of people um, tending to emotionalize the difficulty of changing their, their diet and lifestyle. And that's one of my main goals with this new book is hopefully trying to shine a light on the way that we are wired to eat, that we're wired to eat more and move less. And if you understand that, then hopefully this diffuses some of the guilt that, that you may feel. Now, it doesn't mean that we can necessarily keep doing exactly what we've been doing and, and you know, get a different response. We're still going to need to do something different. But if, the, if people are not in a, a uh, fragile, broken state because they feel like they're, they're just a failure inherently, then we can start moving forward and, and be in kind of a positive mindset. Right, right. There's also, uh, um, I suspect, there's on the, an, an aspect of food that food is, as you know, central. You know, central. And central is a, is a dirty world in this country. Right, right, dirty wood. Uh, so, uh, if people enjoy food too much, then they feel guilty about it. Right. So, uh, what do you think about this uh, this concept, this idea? Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, the U.S. is a really wacky place. I mean, we um, yeah. uh, it, it's uh, and this maybe is getting out out into the weeds, or maybe a little political, but uh, you know, in in the U.K. Um, they don't really allow guns to be shown on television shows. Like it's pretty limited, like the discharge of firing of guns, but you'll see nudity all the time, you know, yeah. like female topless and, and stuff <clears throat> like that. Whereas in the United States, God forbid you see anybody kind of stripped down and somewhat naked, but you know, most children by the age of, you know, four or five have seen hundreds or possibly thousands of gunfight exchanges and, yes. and, uh, and I'm actually a gun owner. I'm not anti-gun. I, I love the second amendment and that'll probably, mm -hmm. get you but it's just interesting. Like there's a really interesting bias with all that stuff where sexuality and sensual, you know, kind of hedonistic behavior is really looked down upon, but some of the more aggressive, destructive behavior, Oh, that's okay. You know, like we're, we're, yeah. we're totally fine with that. And, um, you know, food should be this, uh, this unifying point. And this is a, another piece, you know, that's, that's fascinating. Um, as people have specialized more in their work, as people, um, you know, drift away from, from small community living to urban living, we're really fractionated. And so you really don't have those, uh, those things that bring people together like civic groups or church or, or, you know, family gatherings and, and whatnot. Um, this is some of the interesting stuff though, about why things like CrossFit have been so successful. They have potlucks. They tend to embrace kind of a paleo type type diet. So there's some continuity there and the food does end up being a really, uh, uh, cohesive feature of, of that culture. And you see this within the, the vegan scene too, like they have their own restaurants and they have get togethers and they, it, it's, uh, it's that thread of continuity that, that holds everybody together. Um, 
but but yeah, there is in the background this really wacky sense that if your food is good and you enjoy it, that there you should be kind of guilty about that, feel guilty about that. Right. I uh, I felt exactly the same way as you did, as far as uh, you know what, what's allowed and what's not allowed. Uh, I never understood how showing a nipple uh, could damage a child more than uh, them seeing uh, people being blown up on uh, on TV or in the movie. Right. You know, I right. mean, in in our culture in France, um, you know, uh, until a certain age, the kids walk around naked and they take baths with their parents and it's, it's, it's all okay. It's acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's just that's what it is. It is, yeah. it is yeah. right. Another aspect of food, which I think is important that we should uh, maybe at least approach is um, food is social. And one big difference that I see between Europe and here is that uh, in Europe, when you when you get together for food, it's typically at someone's home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's a it's a social gathering. It's a sharing food together. It's a pleasure. You get to talk about different things, not just you know, obviously not just food. But I found that in America, in general, food is always done outside. It's rarely done at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people meet at a restaurant or they, you know, they meet somewhere else, but really, uh, even here in Austin, where uh, I have gathering with friends, most of the gathering that we do at home are with either European or Mexicans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Well, they invite us to their home. Um, you know, I'm, for example, I'm having a crepes party this, this Saturday, right? So I'm, I invite my friends, they come to my home. It's not fancy, it's not particularly, you know, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not obsessive about cleaning, but I don't care. I invite my friends because they come to see me and we come to get together. It's not about showing up, it's not by showing how beautiful your house is, it's not. So there's this whole aspect of food as a social event that seems to be still a detached event in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, um, people don't cook in the United States particularly much. And that's a, uh, a trend that is not changing. Um, it, it seems to only be worsening as far as that goes. Uh, Americans tend to work more. We tend to sleep less. Um, this is uh, stuff that I've talked about in both books, you know, where people really get in that, that keeping up with the Joneses, kind of mentality where they feel like they need more stuff and then the stuff requires more work. And when you work more, then you have less time to cook and you have less time to socialize. And, you know, if, if you do a pretty aggressive, uh, you know, eight to five, eight to six day, and then you've got an hour commute on the front and back end of that, then you're already, you know, 12 hours into your day and you haven't exercised, you haven't hung out with anybody other than folks at work. And, um, and, uh, you know, largely to support the consumption of stuff that I'm, I'm not sure that any of us really need. And again, like I'm, I'm kind of a libertarian capitalist at heart, but I drive a car that's 10 years old that I bought with cash and I'm going to drive it until the wheels fall off because, yeah. it, you know, it's just um, I would rather be able to go to Italy for a month of the year and hang out and do some language immersion and spend time with my family than I would to 
you know, and I, I never really buy like, it's a Subaru Forester, nothing, you know, it's a great car, but nothing, nothing at all fancy. But the current car, because it's 10 years old, is, is theoretically valued at about $4,000. So pretty, <laughs> pretty low value, uh, blue book value. But to get a new car that would have similar features to the car I have would be like thirty dollars to $35,000. So let's just say $40,000 to make it round numbers. Is that new car 10 times better than the current car I have? No, not at all, you know, but there's, you know, a huge chunk of money because I'm not going to, I'm not going to payment plan it out. I'm not going to do payments. I'm only going to buy it with, with cash. So there's $40,000 that's going to, that's going to go out that I need to figure out some way to make or, or come up with that. Or I don't spend it and I drive this car until again, the wheels fall off. And, uh, you know, over the course of a 20 year period, I've spent almost nothing on my, my transportation costs. And then that ends up uh, freeing me up a lot, you know, to do things like cooking and having people over. We, um, because we have young kids, we've tried to do dinner parties, but it's tough because the kids start getting tired and they need to go to bed and then that kind of breaks things up. So what we've been doing is a Sunday breakfast slash brunch where uh, the early risers get over to our house about 8am and we just keep cooking food and keeping the, the, you know, the, the kitchen open until about noon or one o'clock. And then we end up having 10, 15, 20 people that, that roll through in the course of the day and they bring a, a little bit over. And so it's kind of a rolling potluck kind of, kind of scenario. Right. But then that way we end up having this community and this, this connection and the food, like to your point is the, the kind of connective tissue on that. But then we talk about all kinds of other things and the kids get to play and, and hang out and we just get some of that, that socialization. Right. So absolutely, it's a matter of priority. Do you put your money in uh, in your brand new car every three years, or do you put your money in traveling, exploring the world, eating good quality food, and staying healthy? Right. 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 It's a known psychological fact that we'll remember an experience far longer than we'll remember the you know the car we bought or you know the trinket that we had on our wrist or whatever it is. Right. Experiences stay with us. Yes, absolutely. Memories are very, very important in our, in our psyche, I suppose. Um, all right, let's switch back to um, the important matter here, uh, your newest book, Wired to Eat. Uh, can you tell us about the central premise? Uh, the central premise with Wired to Eat is looking at this ancestral health model from the perspective of the neuroregulation of appetite, like how do we know when we've eaten enough versus not enough? And then the flip side of that, how can our modern world and the changes in our sleep and food, exercise, our gut biome, how can these things hijack our neuroregulation of appetite such that we end up overeating? And it, uh, you know, it, it still has lots of that ancestral health, evolutionary biology perspective, but unlike my First book, it's not starting from the, the basic premise that, you know, hunter-gatherers ate this way, so maybe we should emulate that. It, it really is starting from the, the, you know, trying to understand both mechanistically and emotionally the reasons why we eat what we eat when we get a, a sense of satiety. And then once we understand that, then it's pretty clear that the modern world is working against us. Like we've got a, a, a pretty good fight on our hands to work against the, the uh, you know, the changes in our sleep and photo period, the ubiquity of hyper palatable foods. But if we understand that, then we're in a pretty, a much better spot to be able to affect some beneficial change. And so the, 
front part of the book talks about the neuroregulation of appetite and all those implications for our health. I talk about everything from autoimmunity to neurodegenerative disease as a as an outgrowth of this kind of you know westernized eating pattern. And then on the second half of the book, I have a 30-day reset, which helps to normalize the neuroregulation of appetite, reduce inflammation, restore gut health. And then there's a seven-day carb test where we go beyond that basic paleo type template so that we can see, do I do okay with lentils? Do I do okay with white rice and white potatoes? Or do I really need to limit my intake of those things? Like I just did a uh, two week experiment where I wore a a continuous glucose monitor, which samples my blood sugar every once every minute throughout the the course of this whole experiment. And um, I discovered that white rice and white potatoes will make my blood sugar get up into diabetic levels unless I have a very small amount. Whereas mm. equal amounts of carbohydrate from lentils causes a barely perceptible increase in my, my blood glucose levels. So things like uh, uh, lentils and plantains, I do great with things like white rice and white potatoes really, really negatively affect my blood sugar. And this mm. is something that I've noticed objectively or subjectively for years, you know, I'll have some rice, I'll feel okay for a little while, and then I start feeling foggy headed, and then I get that hypoglycemic kind of post intake kind of kind of crash. And I was able to actually see that in real time with the continuous blood glucose monitor. So I was able to to match up my subjective, uh, you know, uh, feelings with this objective measurement of where my blood glucose was. Right. Now, keeping in mind that not everyone is capable or willing to do that continuous test, how would you put that in practical terms for the average person? So what I recommend in the book is kind of two, two potential tracks, although they can weave together. The one is just a list of subjective observations to, you know, you eat a particular meal. How do you feel an hour later? How was your vision? How was your hunger? How's your digestion? And it, it kind of goes forward with that, which is pretty, pretty subjective. You know, you, you need to, you know, be kind of tuned in to see how you're feeling. And then I do make the recommendation of just buying a basic blood glucose meter where you, you do the finger prick and, and you do that at, at a two hour intervals after the meal. Um, the combination is very, very powerful, but if we can just get people to in a, a rigorous fashion, just pay attention to the way that they feel after a meal, then that can give them a, a ton of feedback and they can get a sense of maybe this food isn't a good fit for me at all, or maybe I just need to make sure that my, my intake of this particular food is below a certain level so that I, I don't feel bad from it. Right. Um, as, as great as it sounds, as one, one observation I've noticed with uh, my clients is that it is very difficult to convince them to pay attention to their body's signal, to mm-hmm. be aware of. I tried to get them to write a, a food diary, okay, what did you eat and uh, what, how do you feel an hour later and what, how do you feel two hours later? And I would say 98% of them do not do it. Right. They, don't, they don't take the time, they don't think it's that important, uh, it's like, oh, you know, it's too complicated or I don't have time for this. And so how do you uh, suggest we go over that? Because for some people, it could be very critical, especially diabetics, for example. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, there are some technology platforms like some some meal tracker apps, which you can, I mean, still it requires some degree of buy-in on the person's part. You know, they'll take a picture of the food and then, you know, when they do that, then automatically you can set it up so that a timer starts and in two hours, the timer will ding and then, it, you know, how are you feeling? And so you can, uh, some of these uh, uh meal tracker apps, you can set things up. So it's pretty easy, but there's still some degree of interaction within that, that whole process. But um, when I ran our gym in, in Chico, California, and even at, at, I'm on the board of directors of a medical clinic here in Reno, Nevada, um, I'm kind of a meanie with this stuff. You know, I just asked the person, are you really here to affect some change or do you just, is this just social hour for you? And if it's just social hour, that's fine. I'll keep my expectations really low, but definitely don't come back to me and say, Hey, why am I not losing weight? Why am I not making forward progress? Like if you aren't going to comply with the program, but you just enjoy the interaction, then okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. So long as I don't reach a point where I enjoy someone else's company better and they are, willing to work. You know, I, I want to work with people that are, are willing to work. So I put out some pretty high expectations and, uh, you know, I, I, um, I do try to ask people to find the why behind what they're doing. Like, do you want to see your grandkids grow up? Do you, you know, do you want to see your kids get married? Do you, you know, usually somebody has some sort of a, a why that is reasonably compelling that would, uh, you know, make that that comparative sacrifice worthwhile for for him or her but so there's a couple of different avenues i take with that but i just have a really honest conversation and try to discover like really what are we up to here like what are your goals how can i help facilitate that but at the end of the day a lot of the heavy lifting still falls on that that individual like i can't do the work for that person unless they want me to live with them 24 seven and I prep all their food and I, I control the, the inputs and outputs the way that would happen in prison. But well, that's not particularly fun either. And that's not a long-term sustainable plan. So yeah, there's some degree of personal accountability that just has to come into that, that story. And it's not always an easy thing to get it. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad to know I'm not the only meanie around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's tough love. Uh, the thing is, if, uh, you know, I haven't had the chance to read your book and I would like to, but um, my, my, uh, one of the things that I'm getting from the short uh, description I read is that uh, if we are anything like animals, we eat as much food as we can because we're afraid to starve and then we, we rest. Right. You know, we, we rest. So um, does that make people inherently uh, lazy? Uh, is that why they are resisting any kind of efforts in general to get better? Well, I mean, it, let's ask the question, what is lazy? Right. You know, so um, I've worked a lot with Navy SEALs, and these guys go through a process called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition School, and then they go through this thing called Hell Week where they keep them awake for basically one week and just huge emotional, physical stress. And they're trying to make these guys break. So they are being forced to work both cognitively and physically as hard as possible. But what, what becomes clear very early on is the people who are more likely to be successful, if they can lay down for five seconds, 
they lay down for five seconds. If, if they can lean against a wall and close their eyes and just even feign a moment of sleep, they do it because that ends up saving them energy and maybe even restores them a little bit. And that is something that is woven into our genetics. And so again, we have this kind of uh, negative moniker of laziness, but baked into the cake, baked in, into our genetics is this, uh, this thing of optimum foraging strategy where we look for as much food as possible, spending as little energy as possible. And this is just basic economics. Like this is the way that you look if a business is economically viable. Like, are you making more money than you're spending? You know, and this is really all it is in any organism that consistently spends more energy than it gets out in the natural world is going to die. It's going to essentially starve to death. And, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, we are quote lazy and that's a, a genetic level. Um, but there is some reality that we are also kind of wired to be physically active that as hunter gatherers, we, hunted and gathered, and we did lots of physical activity. And if people eat in a way where they're not suffering kind of hypoglycemic events and, and insulin crashes and whatnot, people tend to just kind of be spontaneously active and their activity level tends to match up very, very precisely with their, their food intake. And so where that goes wrong is when we start becoming insulin resistant and we experience hormonal dysregulation and then we kind of get in this starvation mode and we're very sedentary, very inactive, but at the same time, we're eating excessive amounts of food and starting to become sick and inflamed and overweight. And that's where um, when we're doing things right, there's kind of a virtuous cycle up. And when we do it wrong, there's a virtuous cycle going down. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it's uh, something that culturally we, um, you know, we put this neg- negative connotation of laziness on on the story but it's really not about laziness like this is a conserved feature of our genetics and it has really served us well in the past but it's not really serving us so well today and but but you know that feature isn't going to change overnight it's not going to possibly change ever because of the the structure the way that our our society and our our evolution is at this point so um, we're probably never going to reach a spot where we can drink you know, soda and sit in a chair and not go outside and get sun on our skin and make it to reproductive age, <laughs> you know, like right. it, it's unlikely to happen. Well, there's, there again is the cultural difference. Uh, in, in Europe, in, peop- in general, people tend to take the time to enjoy life more. Mm. It's not about work, work, work. It's not about... Um, there's, there's typically no guilt associated to taking a nap or to, um, you know, smell the roses or uh, enjoy your family. Uh, whereby this in this country everything's so uh, intense, and you mm-hmm. know, and then you you kind of lose the, uh, the la joie de vivre, so to right. speak, right? right. Yeah, it's, I don't know that people have any sense of, of uh, joy of life in the United States at times. Like, it, yeah. it's, uh, it seems like a, a death march, one foot in front of the other, um, you know, trying to live up to some kind of wacky expectations, what we should or shouldn't be, and not a lot of, of joy and happiness along the way that, that I observe. And this may be my, my bias and my... Um, uh, 
yeah, I guess, I guess my bias is the best way to, to put it. But when I spend time in places like Nicaragua or the Bahamas, or, or if we go to Florence or something like that, like it's just a much more relaxed pace. People seem much more sane. They seem more kind. They seem more relaxed. And people work hard and everything, but it, it, they're not defined by their work. You know, there yeah. is in the United States, there's this, well, what do you do? You know, and then there's this immediate kind of dick measuring thing that occurs right, right. after that, you know, uh, kind of classist uh, kind of experience. And uh, I don't really see that to the same degree most other places. And it, no. um, mm-hmm. it's interesting. And again, this right. is a contributor to that base level of stress. But, you know, in the United States, if they can just keep you on this hamster wheel and you just work your ass off and all the money that you make goes into buying stuff you don't really need. And then uh, you end up with yeah. some sort of chronic disease and then you're in the sick care system and then you croak. That was your experience. You know, that was, that was yeah. the totality of your, your life experience. And it's pretty unfortunate, but it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a tough sell to get people to do what they need to do to, to step out of that process. Right. Yeah, it's, given, it's almost as if the only virtue left is to work hard and you know, none of the other virtues seem to matter. Right. 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 You're, you're in a unique position being married to an Italian woman. You, you also see the other side of the story, the, how things are done in, in their culture. Right. Right. And, and uh, we're pretty fortunate that we, because of the work that we do, we're able to travel a decent amount and I can work remotely and, so we can go spend some time in Nicaragua or the Bahamas or, or Italy and, and really get some decent cultural immersion. And, uh, you know, there's some really laudable elements to the United States, clearly, but there's also some, some pieces that are, are really challenging. Like if you want to um, pull yourself out of that kind of rat race mentality, uh, you, you can get looked down upon pretty quickly. You know, it's yeah. like, well, why aren't you working harder to have that bigger house, to have the new car and all that type of stuff. And it's fairly easy to get into uh, an environment, you know, like Southern California is terrible for this. Like if, if you don't have the latest model car, like you're a dirt bag, you know, and it's a complete sign of, of status. Now the people who are driving these, these current model cars, usually it's some sort of a lease where they're paying more for the car than they do for the place that they're living in. Uh, but it, it's, uh, you know, I guess that that's kind of the song and dance that you need to do to exist within that environment. Which leads us to uh, the other aspects of uh, the paleo uh, lifestyle, which is stress, sleep, and then uh, exercise, gut health, and all right. of these issues. So uh, obviously when we work so hard, we have a lot more stress. We have a lot, typically a lot less sleep. And when right. you don't take the time to exercise and pay attention to your diet, how would you um, elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's perfectly stated. I, I don't know that I could really add a ton to that. You know, there's uh, 168 hours in a week. If you sleep eight hours a night, then, you know, you've whittled away 60, you know, 50, 60 hours of that. And so you're down to about 100 hours. And then if you work, if you only work 40 hours a week, then you've only got a little bit of, you know, leftover time. And it's uh, if you stick a one hour commute on the front end and back end of all that, then you've whittled off another, you know, uh, 14 to 20 hours. So you end up with very, very little time at the end of the day to, um, to be able to do 
basic things like exercising or cooking food for yourself. Um, we have two young girls, uh, uh, four and two, soon to be uh, uh, three and five. And man, it's, um, it's a three ring circus, keeping everybody fed and watered and the laundry going. And uh, I don't work grinding hours, but like right now I'm in this book launch mode. And so I have to, you know, I'm doing lots of podcasts like this and I'm generating all kinds of of content for trying to promote the book and everything. And it's a very, very busy time. Like it is far busier than what I'm really comfortable with. And I think that that, you know, that's one thing. I think everybody likes a challenge and everybody likes kind of punctuated, you know, the, this is uh, some of these things like go rucks and Spartan challenges. Like you've got a really tough project that you're going to do when you work towards it, but there's a start point and an end point. And I think that those can be pretty appealing, but unfortunately the way that modern life works out, um, it's just a grind. Like there's really not any type of periodization or cyclical element to it. It, I think everybody probably enjoys working really hard for periods of time, but then you, you want some legitimate downtime and some relaxation and whatnot. And, uh, that's when you could get back in and reprioritize sleep and, and, uh, get, get that exercise regimen going, whether it's yoga or hiking or, you know, doing CrossFit or what have you. But when everything just keeps expanding out, when the time demands of just basic work and life encroach into all those other elective periods and there's not much left. Right. What I've noticed too is that even when people take vacations or they are supposed to relax or they are supposed to do something, there's always this competitive edge in there if you go exercise, you have to be the best exerciser. If you go uh, to nap, you have to be the best napper. You know, I'm joking, but <laughs> you, you know, this competitive, uh, even if you, I mean, the other day, this, uh, this friend of mine was telling, he was all excited about this trip to Europe where they basically spend two days in each major city in Europe. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not traveling. No, that's crazy. That's, you cannot yeah. discover a city like Paris or Rome or London in two days. There's no way. This is such a, a death march. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, and it's at the end of the day, you're so tired and you so uh, your mind is so you're so overloaded with the information that you don't re- even take the time to absorb it and appreciate right. it. So this is definitely a very American way of looking at things. How do you explain that? Uh, strive for constant competition like to be the the best uh, i mean we're going back to the puritanical uh, system again it, it's interesting i mean clearly there's some laudable elements about um trying to be the best person that you can be and putting in the best work that you can do but there there is kind of an interesting flip side of that which is uh you know how much are you willing to give up to be the best at every little thing that you're doing, you know, and, and, uh, these, these, um, one or two days in different location travel things have never made sense to me. And this is where I, I guess just kind of on a innate level, I'm a little bit more European in, in, you know, kind of like kind of wiring that I, than I am American. Like we've always gone to a spot, like we'll go to Florence or we'll go to, uh, the backwoods in Nicaragua and we get a base camp and we might, launch out from there like we might do a one or two day excursion somewhere but then we go back to that that base camp you know and we really get to know that area and we and one of two things happens either we become completely enamored with that area and we love going back and just kind of deepening our experience 
or, you know, it was a pretty good experience, but maybe there's a little bit of a better spot, but we go in and we try to hunker in and go deep and we meet the people around there. We try to have some dinners with, with locals and get to know them and have some people that we, we know on a, a deeper level. And so I've always been far more attracted to that type of process versus, you know, jamming through Paris and then the next day I'm in Berlin and the next day, you know, I'm in Prague or something, you know, that just doesn't seem like fun at all. It, it seems right. like a march, but a lot of people are, find that appealing and that, you know, part of what they say is like, oh, we're going to visit eight European cities in 14 days. And it's like, wow, okay, you're going to feel like hell by the end of that, you know, and really, right. really, what did you take out of that experience, you know, but yeah. it, it is, um, it's interesting. I don't know the, yeah. um, the hyper competitive element in the United States is, is interesting. You know, we've exported that to some, some places. Uh, Japan really adopted that uh, whole hog, uh, Korea, uh, like in the Korean language, they developed a word for for working oneself to death. Like people would be at work and they would just fall over and die. And there was no real known cause of death, just they worked until they died. And these are people in like their 30s and 40s, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it. it's kind of rough. Well, yeah. from what you're telling me, you're, you're, not, you're not a real American. I, apparently I'm not. Apparently I'm not. Other than my my uh, gun ownership, I think is my main uh, main American trait. So yeah, that's yeah. right. And I'm with you on that too, by the way. Right. Um, okay. So sounds like going, you've evolved a bit. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a good influence from your Italian uh, wife. We'll right. give her credit for that, right? Right. Right. Uh, so um, an interesting, another interesting part of your book is the community factor, which we kind of addressed already, but how does uh, it's a known fact that in this society in American society people tend to be very separated very lonely mm -hmm. very the families are broken up people are you know children moving away and all that so how does the community factor uh, influence one's health you know it's pretty well understood and it, it, this research is largely epidemiological but it's very compelling uh, people who have adequate social connectivity tend to have it a health advantage that, that is pretty remarkable. And the flip side of this is, is even more striking. Inadequate social connectivity seems to be as negative on health as a pack a day smoking habit. So if you don't have the friends, the family, those, those adequate connections, which again, we, we kind of evolved as hunter gatherer groups and extended families. And it's only rather recently that we didn't um, live in a situation in which we had kind of an extended social network that, that was part of our experience. And part of that is that, you know, as societies have become more mobile for, for work, there's great elements to that because like if you work in an industry that kind of, you know, isn't working for the area that you live in, you can probably move somewhere where you can find work in your, your, uh, your industry or, you know, a reasonable uh, re-education and you can, you can kind of shift into something else that's related. And so there's some great benefits there from like an economics and stability standpoint. But what it does is it moves people all over the, the globe or all over a, a country. And so each time you land in a new spot, you need to start creating connections again. And that's kind of a slow process. And then we get back into the story that people don't have much time to do anything. So you, know, you meet the people that you see at work and that's kind of the, almost the totality of your experience. 
or maybe you go to a civic group or something like CrossFit or maybe some sort of a church or something like that. And you maybe get some, some social connectivity there, but the, I view health as requiring these four pillars, sleep, food, exercise, and community. And the community piece is just dramatically undervalued. It's very easy to ignore it. And, you, you know, our, our modern work life, which we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, is really kind of stacking the cards against us. And then another thing that is, has emerged, which is both, both good and bad, is social media. Social media is really interesting because we can get ideas like what we're talking about here. We can get that out to millions of people now, you know, and, and really effortlessly. But at the same time, it gives us the sense that we do have community, but it's really not, you know, when you look at kind of like the dopamine levels and the way that our, our brain processes uh, social media interaction, it, it leaves us wanting. So it's almost like the junk food of socialization. Like you think you got something good, but you really didn't. And right. so there's a lot of moving parts to that. And uh, one thing that I think is interesting, and this is maybe a little tangential, but the people who develop social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they really understand evolutionary biology. They understand our neurological wiring and they know how to make things addictive and to get you to repeat this experience. The people who are involved in making hyper palatable junk food, um, they understand evolutionary biology. They understand the neuroregulation of appetite. And they use that to manufacture things that are essentially addictive and, and habit forming. Now, the people who are selling us on these addictive processes really understand the ancestral health template very well, but they use it in a way that really isn't benefiting us. But then when you go to the bulk of medicine and diet, you know, mainstream medicine and dietetics and whatnot, this idea of an ancestral health approach is completely novel to them. So right. our gatekeepers are ignorant of these topics and the people who are selling us these addictive behaviors and products are completely wired in on it. And so I, I just find that really intriguing that, you know, the people who are supposed to be there taking care of us and acting as gatekeepers don't understand the fundamental mechanisms of why the situation is the way it is. Right. Um, one could argue that in the old days, especially in the, Paleo times, uh, community was um, survival. I mean, without the community, yeah. without the community, you could not survive. The family, the I mean, you had uh, both uh, the the man going to hunt and provide food, and the woman taking care of the the, the children and all that. Not only that, but there was um, you know the the family taking care of the elders and then mm -hmm. the the youngest, and there was you know there was respect for the elders knowledge and some of that and if someone was literally cast out they would die right right, right. so how where where we did, did we lose that i mean it's still valid in some societies but in this in this uh, country in particular it seems to be just completely uh, lost you know we it, the the work mobility i i think is a big contributor to this and it, again it has both good and bad elements to it. You know, if you are a metal worker and you lived in Michigan or something and like the auto industry has disappeared there, that could be a catastrophic event for you. But if you <clears throat> are motivated, you could look around and you could find metal working jobs in 
Florida or Texas or, you know, wh- wh- wherever, and you would have the opportunity to move and, and uh, take advantage of that. And so it's good from that perspective, but then it, it's definitely challenging from the perspective that each time you move, then you need to start your social network effectively over again. And in my opinion, I think that most of the loss of connectivity is actually an outgrowth of our, our mobile work environment. And then there are some other confounders like social media, which gives us the sense that we're having connectivity, but it's really not connection. It's not having people to your home for Sunday brunch, you know, once a week. Right, right. Um, and this, this may sound a little strange, but I have noticed that all the people I connect with and all the people that invite over to my house and vice versa, they're typically all foreigners. Right, right, right. You know, my friends are Mexicans, they're French, they're Italian, uh, you know, even German, uh, uh, Peruvian. I mean, they're from all over the world where the culture is more communal. Right. And, right. and it doesn't mean that American people are bad people, but it's very difficult to, ke- to, to get them to do this kind of, uh, this kind of event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. So yeah. moving along, um, how do you see the future of the paleo movement in five years? And five, I don't know about five years I'd be willing to put a, a specific prediction, but my long-term okay. prediction with the paleo concept is that eventually you won't even hear the term paleo. Um, it's just going to kind of disappear into the, the background. But what I've, I've long predicted is that this ancestral health framework will get adopted into mainstream medicine. And uh, uh, because it, it, if you think about it like an operating system on a computer, mm-hmm. this ancestral health template is a superior operating system, mm-hmm. period. Um, and so now that we are able to share this via social media and people can experiment with it and we have more research going on right now looking at the paleo diet concept and it's been done in the history of the the, the whole uh, paleo diet experience, um, you know, in the next five years, we're going to have more research performed than has been done in the last 30 years in this topic. So mm-hmm. that's going to be really powerful, but it's, uh, it's something that just should have been part of medicine from the beginning. It, you know, we've got infectious disease and then we've got chronic disease. The chronic disease is an outgrowth of the discordance theory. It's a mismatch between our genetics and our environment. There's never going to be a magic bullet that fixes that. We're going to have to address sleep, food, exercise, and community to, to fix those issues. That is all predicated on this kind of ancestral health approach. So that, that's just going to be part of the, the curriculum eventually at medical schools and dietetics programs and whatnot. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic right now is graduating its, its uh, medical students with um, a background in functional medicine which is a very different way of looking at the, the kind of allopathic medical side, but it also tends to be pretty heavily steeped in this kind of paleo diet, ancestral health template. You know, they're thinking about sleep, food, exercise, photo period, community. So it's all getting kind of baked in the cake. So my, my, my hope and, and to some degree, my, my thought with this is that, uh, you know, it's just going to blend in and, you know, uh, the same way that if you, 
if you went to a physics conference and you ask people, hey, what would physics look like without quantum mechanics? They're like, well, it just wouldn't work. This is the, you know, one of the foundational elements of, of physics. You know, it, it just wouldn't function that way. And what's interesting is medicine, even though it's a, a subdiscipline of biology, it's been able to largely function without this fundamental template of evolution via natural selection because we've had so much success with things like uh, public health, hygiene, sanitation, vaccinations, antibiotics, like that has been so successful in the previous century that it's brought us to a point now where the diseases of affluence are really starting to cripple our, our economy and really putting a huge burden on our medical systems. And we're just not going to be able to find a magic bullet out of that. And so we're going to have to circle back around and use the best elements of modern medicine to deal with kind of acute illness. But to avoid the chronic illness, we are going to need to re-embrace some of this ancestral health template. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing with that. Sure. Um, forgot to ask you a question about the book. Do you have recipes in the book? Being a yeah, chef, you know. there's uh, 80, 85 recipes, and that, that all of that was developed by Charles and Julie Mayfield, the folks that did uh, Paleo Comfort Foods, and it's it's really good. I mean, it's almost a whole recipe book. Like a, a recipe book is usually 110 to 120 recipes, so I mean, it's really not far off of being right. a full recipe book, which is part of the reason why the book is over 400 pages, which made the publisher pretty angry, but I, I was... <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of insistent that it needed to be as long as it needed to be, and not not less, not longer. Right. And that, that was a good spot. Well, as a chef, I'm curious to see those recipes. Oh, you! I, I uh, am looking forward to see what see what you think of them. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it's your turn. I know I took a lot of time, but it was very. Uh, I, I couldn't help it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's no doubt about it. I, I think the thing that's you know, being an, an, an onlooker for the first part of this is the interesting comment I've got to make is although you know, uh, we were primarily going to talk about food and exercise and that sort of thing from the point of view of health, our discussion really has ranged around lifestyle more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So it, it just goes to show how much more important that is, maybe even over what we eat. It, it is. And, you know, this is one of the things that made my publishers crazy because they, you know, like I had a whole chapter devoted to cheat, you know, this concept of can you cheat on your food and do you need a healthy relationship with food? They just felt like this stuff was diversionary. They were, they were like, just tell them what to eat and they'll just go and do it. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that no, way. You know, there's all this <laughs> other stuff, you know, if it, if it was just food, then the first book would have addressed all these issues, you know, but it, it uh, uh, the first book was just just fine with addressing bulk of metabolic arrangement and autoimmunity and all that stuff, but there's all this other extenuating stuff that's social and psychological and and largely lifestyle driven. And if you don't address those things, and part of it is just kind of peeling back a veil, like people mm. aren't even aware that they are in this situation. And then when you make them aware, it doesn't mean that anything changes, but there's the opportunity for change. But until they understand the situation that they're in, until they recognize the bars of the cage, they can't even affect any change towards getting out. And no. that was part of the reason why I put so much emphasis on these uh, not protein, carb, fat elements. You know, it's all this other stuff that is so important. It, it, 
the book is top heavy on the food, but that's what people, there is a, a, a Joel Salatin. He, he runs Polyface Farms, a really yes. brilliant guy. Um, he has a great saying, like, you can be weird, but you can only be so weird. And, and he, he, he's like, you can be a Buddhist or you can be a nudist, but you can't be a Buddhist nudist. Like, you know, there's <laughs> weirdness. And within this, um, this kind of health book scene, like, the, the expectation is that it's a diet book. And so you've got yeah, to have basically, it. Yeah. It's kind of like an Arthur Murray dance school. Like, you've got to have the, the tick certain boxes with regards to what you're going to offer. And, and there's some, some good wisdom to that because these are some of the things that people need. But there is a reality that um, uh, most of the things that hamstring people are, are these intangibles related to like their internal dialogue and like their, the, you know, the perceived relationship that they have with food. And it really has nothing to do with food. It has to yeah. do with the, you know, they had abandonment issues as a kid and then their, their caregiver, uh, uh, you know, palliatively uh, uh, cook them all this great food to make them feel better because they felt sorry for them. And so then you associate food with love and then, you know, you're, you're in this uh, uh, really difficult situation that if you just focus on the food and ignore all the, the uh, social community elements, you're never going to untangle that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I, I can reinforce that argument from the other end. About uh, nine or ten years ago, I wrote a book called How to Lose Weight by Using the Power of Your Mind. Right. Um, one of the things back then that people were going on about is, well, there's no recipes in it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> there's no there's a lot of recipes around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it was quite, quite amusing. I mean, after, after I got over that, what do you mean you don't like it? After I got over that, well, no, it's, you know, it doesn't address that. You know, it addresses right. the most fundamental matter is, why you want to get fit in the first place. Right, right. Um, coming back a minute to food, I mean, we, we have rushed across it several times. I've, I've noticed in the low-carb world, well, low world over the last 20-odd years, and now in the paleo world, there's this fight on between protein, fat, and carbohydrates, you know, how much you should have, have of each one. Right, um, the macronutrient wars, yeah. Yes, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's almost the stuff of a science fiction space movie. You know? Right. So there, there must be a sweet spot, and that's going to be individual for everybody. But having come as far as you have in, in the paleo um, mold of doing things, with all the other things that come in that have influenced what you think now, what do you think, or in what range do you think those sweet spots are going to be for most people? And part two of that is how can people find their sweet spot? Mm. Maybe I'll tackle the how to find the sweet spot first. And uh, that is largely a process. Like I tend to recommend that people start on the lower carb side of things and then start ratcheting up. And maybe even prior to that, and this is something that I go over in the book, the 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 thinking around all this is kind of twofold. One, we do want to uh, reduce our caloric intake. Like the, there's these two competing camps out there. One is the calories in, calories out camp, and they say calories are the only thing that's important. Then there's this other, which is kind of the hormone or the insulin hypothesis camp. And really, both of them are true. Like d depending on where your hormonal status is, if you have great insulin sensitivity and your caloric level is low or high, 
it's very different than if your insulin sensitivity is poor and your caloric level is low or high. You know, usually yeah. the insulin sensitive person just tends to be leaner and more muscular and they tend to partition calories into muscle relative to fat. So the insulin side and the hormonal side is accurate, but there's also a, a basic reality that if you starve people, they're going to lose weight. But the only place you can starve people long term is in a metabolic ward. You know, mm. free living humans. Uh, the first time they go to a supermarket, there's 50,000 food items in there that they could choose from, you know, and whatever itch they want to scratch, they can scratch it. So the, you know, the calories in calories out people completely miss the, the neuroregulation of appetite piece and the fact that we are free living humans. And so, so I, I, you know, in the beginning, it's helpful for people to do both some subjective and objective assessment of where their insulin sensitivity is. Like if you are overweight, you tend to carry the weight uniformly through your body, which tends to indicate caloric excess, but maybe not necessarily insulin resistance, or do you mainly carry it around the midsection with a visceral adiposity? And that's a pretty good indication that you're, you're insulin resistant. And there, mm. there are some other things like some blood work looking at uh, fasting blood glucose levels, A1C, fructosamine, and, and I get into... Uh, kind of some ways that you can figure out where you are. But in, if an individual is insulin resistant, then I definitely recommend that they start on the lower carb side of things, maybe like 50 to 75 grams of, of carbs a day. It doesn't necessarily have to be ketotic, although I do a chapter in the book on ketosis and fasting and kind of look at that as, as a separate but very, very important tool. But we start people off on the lower carb side of things and we see how they look, feel, and perform. And then as they motor along, you know, it's like, let's try pushing that carb level up and let's play with the uh, types of carbs that we have and find a spot where you can get about as much latitude as you can while feeling good. Uh, one of the big indicators is if you eat a particular meal, how long can you go before the next meal before you feel really bad? If it's mm -hmm. only like an hour and a half to two hours, we don't have a good air fuel mixture. You are not insulin sensitive. Like there's a problem there. And, mm -hmm. uh, if you could go five, six, seven hours and you might get hungry, but you're still functional, you still have good cognition, we've got a pretty good air fuel mixture there. And we've got a good level of insulin sensitivity. Your body can access body fat between meals to, uh, to maintain kind of a, a healthy baseline of uh, energy for the brain, energy for the body. And so we can use some subjective measures like that to really figure out what that individual need is. And, and you're spot on. Like we, we can't, let we're, we're beyond the point where one size fits all diets are really going to have any mm. meat. Like if we're not, I think there's two things that we have to talk about. We have to talk about all this stuff from the perspective of the neuroregulation of appetite and all the implications there. And then the other piece of this is that we really have to consider individual needs and personalized nutrition. Mm. And there's a little bit of a rubric. It's a little bit of a choose your own adventure in how to find that, but it's really not that complex. No, but I, I think a lot of people, when they first are presented with a new diet that really is a new lifestyle, they don't really know where to start. So I, goes, I suppose it goes back to what you were saying right in the beginning. Keep it simple. You've got to start them with a template. very simple template, but then remind them this may not, this is the starting place. This may not mm. be the ending point. Maybe it is. Maybe you find your, your perfect air fuel mixture right out of the gate with that, that basic kind of a, a paleo diet template. But more often than not, people will find a little bit of latitude. And, and part of this is just that as their physiology changes, as the individual becomes less inflamed and, and insulin resistant, 
they may tolerate more carbs, whether those are paleo carbs, like mm-hmm. sweet potatoes or, you know, lentils, like, like uh, Alan had talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, coming back to our sort of our social demographic, and I'm, I'm not going to go on for too much longer. I'm conscious of your time. We've been nattering on for nearly an hour and a half. Nice. Um, <laughs> there, from, from what you were saying earlier, there seems to be um, a real conflict between the way we react to food, either from the emotional perspective or from the, um, the rational perspective. And it, it seems that you know, people are going more to the emotional than to the rational. Have you found any way of pushing people to, or encouraging people rather, to think more rationally about what they eat rather than just responding emotionally? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. And this gets into some of our, our neurobiology, neural architecture. So the, the hedonic centers of the brain where um, food and sex and survival are largely processed, these are ancient areas of the brain and they largely deal with emotions. Then we have the cognitive forebrain, which is where we do all this kind of rational, you know, back and forth uh, uh, data analysis. And th- this is a, a big challenge because people are motivated on that emotive side, but being able to connect the logical part of the brain and have it have any type of meaningful interaction with the, the emotional part of the brain is very, very difficult. And so part of this, it's a little bit like a, a Zen experiment where you just have to have awareness of what's going on. So logically, you'll say, okay, if I have a large carb, let's just as an example, if I have a large carbohydrate meal, I know that usually I've got a blood sugar up and a blood sugar down and I'm going to have a hypoglycemic event. So on a logical side, we have that. And then observationally, if you can pull the person in and again, you know, get in that kind of uh, transcendental meditations and state where they're like, oh, okay, I'm observing this process. So I'm hungry, I'm irritable, I'm irrational, I shouldn't have eaten those carbs because now I'm feeling like hell, but you're able to see it from a little bit of a distance. But that process of um, not really judging, but being aware of the emotional process, there does seem to be some sort of linkage there and then it's almost like accessing a, a different, um, you know, server. So we're mm. able to shift from the logical server to that emotive server, and we're able to either, you know, override that or understand it or de-escalate it or what have you. But uh, again, like that's not a particularly easy process, and this yeah. is um, this is still like, uh, despite my best efforts, um, you know, I feel like it's really, really good information. But we are are dealing with some deeply woven elements of our, our biology and our genetics and, and the, the stuff of life, like this is survival and at its most fundamental level. So that stuff is really tightly controlled. It's really tightly protected. And uh, the impulses to eat everything that's not nailed down and to ex, you know, be as, as sedentary as possible, those things are really tightly protected and it, it does take some work to bypass all that. Yeah. Have you found, as, as I have, that people are very much resistant to even analyzing themselves, you know, why they eat, what they eat, and that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I, I saw this a little bit with um, even on the exercise side with endurance athletes where the people would come to me and they, they might have some health issues, but usually they would come to, to work with me because they wanted to improve their 
endurance athletics performance. And so I looked at them and they were weak and they were orthopedically compromised and they had all kinds of structural issues. And so if it, I, I would start looking in their eyes and I would say, so for you to run faster, swim faster or whatever, you're going to have to cut your training volume in half. And if I saw fear on their eyes, I knew <laughs> that what was going on was this person was using the exercise as an escapism method. Mm. They didn't want to be in their body. They didn't want to deal with whatever was going on between their ears. And they were just running from something. And the, mm. the food piece is part of this too. Like if you can keep yourself distracted with food and you don't think about, you know, these, uh, Again, you know, it, it's this weird emotional stuff. You know, it's something in childhood, it's some relationship with a parent or a sibling or something that, that you know, oftentimes sets up kind of a, a painful experience. And this sounds really woo-woo, but it, it's, um, you know, I just see it again and again that the folks that are really reticent to talk about this internal dialoguing and to pay attention to the way that they, you know, the way that a, a meal makes them feel or the way that... uh the idea of changing their, their eating or exercise makes them feel if they're really resistant to that, there's something else going on. And they're, mm. they're like, uh, it's almost like protecting scar tissue. Like they don't want to get in and work on what that, that other thing is. And it, it just, uh, it may be outside the scope of like a, a basic, you know, health coach to, to help that individual. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, it almost seems like we've lost both the ability and the willingness to, um, to to tackle the how can I put that the, the inner feelings of of why we are where we are and who we are and you know what we are doing to f to feed that person right right and and I don't know that it's ever been that easy or transparent of a process you know I think that those you know those things are are challenging and in part it, it's just because of the neural architecture of our brain like the logical mm. part of the brain is not really that well uh, integrated with the emotional side. It's just, just not. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a comment here. Uh, what I tell my students when I teach them f uh, food as uh, medicine is that if at all possible, when they deal with a difficult client, and uh, I don't mean di uh, difficult in a, like a bad sense or mean, it's just that they can't seem to get through I would suggest them to work with a psychologist mm -hmm. that is aware of food issues right? And, and, and work together to help the patient instead of trying to break through and force the issue. Uh, because I'm not a trained uh, psychologist, I, I wouldn't know where to start to address these issues. So the emotional and the, the past uh, pains and hurts and, and you know, everything related to, to that in food are extremely important, yet they, in most cases, they are not addressed. Right. And, and the only caveat I'd add to that is that the food is usually a symptom. It's not the problem. Yeah. It's, right. it's what has been used as a uh, adapting, you know, process. But it, 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 And so that's where there's some of this uh, messaging that you need a healthy relationship with food. And I, I just completely disagree with that notion we mm. understand consequences of food um, people can certainly develop issues around the topic of food and eating but it's really got nothing to do with food and eating it's got to do with some other event that that you know they are using food typically as a, a control mechanism and yeah. uh, uh, oftentimes there's some other things going on like there's a lack of 
intimacy. There's a lack of uh, uh, feeling safe around mm-hmm. other people. And so the, the food can hit those dopamine centers in the brain. And so you feel in control and you're picking the things that you want and you get a little dopamine surge because you're eating this food that tastes good. But really what it's doing is papering over a lack of intimacy and vulnerability that because maybe we got hurt at some point. And again, you know, it's like, uh, I've seen this with, you know, really, um, hard chargers who just don't have a lot of, uh, uh, connectivity in their lives somewhere in their past, like their parents were hard chargers, but they kind of abandoned the kid emotionally. And so the kids started associating food with love. And, and so then they, you know, that's the main thing that they focus on. Um, but then they don't really have tight, meaningful relationships and it, but focusing specifically on the food guarantees that they aren't going to get to the root cause because it's not yeah. really about the food. Yeah, that's very true. And it's I think a it's a controversial topic. I have people want to punch me in the nose when I say you don't need a healthy relationship with food and they want to defend this notion. I'm like, well, how long have you been working on this healthy relationship with food? And then you see even more anger, you know, it's like, well, 20 <laughs> years, it's like, well, how much progress have we made, you know? And, and so it, it's really not about the food. The food is a symptom. And if we focus on the symptom, just, just oh, yeah. like all of medicine, if you chase symptoms, then you you perpetuate the the pathology and the suffering. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I think a lot of people use food as an emotional crutch. You know, there there is a sure. huge amount of comfort eating going on, and people just don't want to admit to that. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to cut right back to where we almost to where we started. You said okay. you started off life as a um, your your nutritional venture, if I can put it that way, um, as a as a vegan and and so on. And then you found that didn't work for you and you moved on to what you now find works for you, which is more or less a paleo diet. How, what would you say are the biggest changes that you've noticed from them to now in point of view of health, in point of view of your mental acuity and those sort of things? Mm, um, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I, when I came into this, I was so sick and I'd been sick really my whole childhood early adult life, like I, I, um, I, I was a victim of constant hypoglycemic events. So when I was mm. eating one meal, I was planning the next meal. And um, when I first went basically ketogenic, it was the most amazing experience I'd ever had because prior to that, I mean, and so I, I discovered this around age 27, 28, some, somewhere around there. So for almost 30 years, I had felt terrible, you know, looking back at it. Like, I I didn't know that there was any other way, but really, um, you know, it was like an emphysemic with an oxygen bottle with regards to food. I just couldn't go more than two hours without eating. I'd get shaky and and irritable and and really non-functional. So then when I went ketogenic, it just cleared the fog and I felt amazing. I had great cognition. Um, If I wanted to go a day without eating, I could. I mean, I would get hungry, but I was totally functional, totally rational, no no problems there. But that was such a profound experience for me that I assumed that this was the thing that everybody should do. And I Hmm. had probably a good 10-year run on that. And I I do still, um, I'm convinced in the literature is quite supportive of this, that lower carbohydrate diets have some real magic to them, particularly for the insulin-resistant individual but they're not appropriate for everybody. They're not appropriate for everybody all the time. You know, like CrossFit games competitors 
probably aren't going to do great on a ketogenic level of carbohydrate intake, uh, jujitsu and MMA folks, and also just people who are naturally insulin sensitive may not do that well on a ketogenic diet. So that's probably been my biggest shift over the, you know, the last 10, 15 years is that, um, I still am just a huge fan of low carb and ketogenic diets. I think there's huge, uh, therapeutic potential within all that, but at the same time, that individual need is a really important factor. But, you know, when we look at it, society, the problem that we're facing is insulin resistance pre-diabetes. So hmm. it's very easy for that reality to supersede everything else because that's the thing that could cripple our economy is, you know, dealing with, yeah. with diabetes-related issues. So it's a very compelling thing. And when we, when we get that right with a low-carb diet, the results are just nothing short of you know, amazing, but that can really, you know, um, uh, shift one's orientation, you know, creates a confirmation bias that is really powerful and it's going to lose some people who, for whom a, a low carb diet may not be the most important. Mm. Feature. Yeah. Super job. Well, I'm conscious of the time we've been chatting for a fair while. It's been lovely talking with you. Great chatting. Very, with very you. interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. All right. Uh, Rob, did you want to, oh yes, we, we should absolutely talk about where do we find your book and uh, where is your website and all these um, oh, sure, good sure. commercial oh, stuff. Good housekeeping. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Robwolf.com is where you can track down most of my material and we'll have a landing page there for uh, the book Wired to Eat. Uh, the book <laughs> is due to be released March 21st. Prior to March 21st, it's available for pre-order everywhere the books are sold. But then as of March 21st, it'll be in bookstores and shipping from Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all that type of stuff. And we will have some sort of a pre-order bonus thing going on. And it'll depend on when this, this particular podcast airs, what, what will be happening with that. But if you go to robwolf.com and poke around, then you can see what some of the pre-order bonuses are like I put together a really slick workbook for people that order wired to eat. It basically helps you go through all of the material and particularly the implementation piece, like the 30 day reset, seven day carb test gives you a really nice framework for, for actually being able to work through all that material. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you again, Rob, for being on the local paleo show and sharing your story with us. And Huge like we're saying, thank you. Our pleasure, our pleasure. Uh, you've, you've been talking to the wise old man of paleo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been brilliant. And, Thanks, Rob. Thank you. And, and like we say in Texas, a votre santé, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that all over Texas. So Absolutely, yeah. 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 <laughs> more, more Louisiana, but yeah. <laughs> Super good, thank you.